So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13 today, and we're going to be talking about God's kingdom and how his kingdom grows, how it's valuable, and the purity of it. Um, so when, when somebody talks about a kingdom, what do you think of? Think of God? Okay, that's awesome. What do most people think of when they think of a kingdom? castles and kings and maybe the United Kingdom or something like that. But we think about somebody that, you know, a kingdom has a king, so there's a ruler that rules over that kingdom and they set the rules. And that's what God does. God has his word for us and God controls his kingdom. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, a lot of times we're thinking about future times during the millennial reign of Christ, that thousand years where the whole earth is under his reign and his rule. And so these are the things that we're looking forward to. Um, but right now we're in the church age, and we're still helping spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you think about the earth, how many people are on the earth right now, give or take a few? Pardon? It, it's eight. There's actually a website you can go, and they, they calculate based on birth rates. It's a little over eight billion. How many... Christians or people who say they're Christian are in the, in the world today. About 2.6 billion. So roughly a third of the earth's population identify as Christian. Now, so how many of those do you think are really disciples of Christ who put Christ first in their life? And they, you know, this is one of those things where they probably do a survey or they ask people, so it's hard to say really what that is. But what, what my point is with that, if we look at the kingdom and, and the work we do for the kingdom, there's still a whole lot of people out there who need to hear the gospel message and, and to hear who God is and who his son Jesus Christ is. So Jesus did a lot of teaching for the people and the disciples using parables. And one of the reasons he did that was he wanted those, he wanted people to have to think. Because you can tell somebody something right out, but if you have to think about it, and, and maybe if somebody has a hard time understanding with something, if you can tell them something that they're familiar with, they'll understand it better. So we're going to go through several different parables about the kingdom today. So Matthew chapter 13, we read verses 31 to 33, and it's the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. So Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants, and it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So in these parables, Jesus is using a very common thing for them. He's using... The, a lot of folks then were farmers. They knew about growing things. So he's talking about mustard seed and the mustard plant. How many of you have seen a mustard seed? How big are they? They're really, really pretty small. But when you plant that, how, how big do you think mustard plants get? Here, a lot of the common field mustard we see might get this tall. But in, in the Mideast, um, you know, in and around Jerusalem, the mustard plants there can get as tall as 15 feet. So if you think about that, if you plant that little seed at the beginning of the, the season for growing, and by the end of it, it's 15 feet tall. So 
Andy, how tall are these ceilings? Are these 10 foot? About 11. So it wouldn't fit in here. It would be bigger. So something that starts out very small grows up to be something very big. And it's so big, it tells, you know, Jesus is telling them, birds can come nest in it. So they can make their nest, they can be there. And it's probably not something like an eagle, but, you know, lots of birds can come and be in there. So when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven is like that, how, how is the kingdom of heaven like the mustard seed that grows in one growing season to this big plant that birds can nest in? Because if we think about it, right, there was, you know, God had God's people, and we had all the Old Testament time. When did the new covenant start? With Jesus. So Jesus was the Messiah. He was foretold in all the prophecies in the Old Testament. And then Jesus was born and lived his life, taught the disciples, and was crucified. And who was the first resurrected one? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the first fruits of God. He was the first one resurrected. All of the rest of us who are believers will be resurrected to eternal life. So just like, you know, and, and I looked up, and this is, you know, it's, it's interesting when you start looking at how people go back and look at things. I think the, the more accurate census in the U.S. started in the 50s. But when, they, when you look back at world population, when you get back around Jesus' time, they really have almost no idea. So I saw some people say, well, there were probably 100 million people. And there were some saying, well, there were maybe 200 million. There were maybe 300 million. One of the studies I said, the number they gave, it was plus or minus 50%. So... They don't really know. But my point is, it started with, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, died on the cross, was dead and buried for three days, and then was resurrected. So it started with Christ, and then you look at the disciples, and then when the early church started, right? So if we have, if we have Jesus Christ who's risen, we have one person, for 100 million people, look at how, you know, the earth has grown to 8 billion people, and there's 2.6 billion Christians, so that's what Jesus is trying to tell them about the, the church and the kingdom of God, is that it's going to grow exponentially. So it's not just one at a time, it grows in multiples. And some of it when we read, you know, when, when um, the disciples are teaching, when the church is brand new, how many people start believing in some cases? Thousands. Sometimes where, where the disciples are out preaching and and doing the works that God assigned for them, that God gave them the power to heal people and to preach the good news of the gospel, thousands of people. So you have one person who goes to a town or an area and he's preaching. So that's how the kingdom grows, is it starts off very small, but it, it grows very quickly because people are hungry for the word. Um, we're all made in God's image. We all seek something to fill that love that we need, that really it's only God can provide that love that we need. You'll see people try to find that they're trying to fill that God-sized hole in their heart with, with money and big houses and exciting adventures and love in all the wrong places and all those kinds of things and really what they need because we're all made in God's image. We're all God's children. We all need God in our life. And until you have God to fill that God-sized hole in your heart, you can just keep, it's a bottomless pit. You can keep pouring stuff in there, but you need that infinite love of God before you're actually going to be satisfied, before you're actually going to know what joy is, before you can be content with your life. Otherwise, you're just going to seek and seek and seek. Um, it's just like eating candy. You're just going to keep eating candy, and you're never going to get full. You're never going to get that nutrition that you need.
one thing about this parable that God talks about is um, when Jesus is preaching, he says at the very end of 32, um, it's larger than the garden plants, it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And he's actually quoting from Ezekiel because uh, there's a, a, a messianic prophecy in Ezekiel. So if you turn to Ezekiel, 20, or Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22 and 23. So Ezekiel 17... I'm going to read verses 22 and 23. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I will plant it, that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of the branches. And so... In this prophecy, the cedar is David, and Christ is of the line of David, and Christ is that young sprig that gets taken, that gets planted at the top of the mountain. The mountain's Israel, and this tree or this kingdom of God grows, and every bird, meaning Jews and Gentiles, salvation is open to them. And and so this was just one example of prophecy of Jesus Christ the Messiah coming, and how Jesus refers back to that, where the kingdom of God is like a tree, and it's this big stately cedar that everybody can come to and be in. So when we get to the, the parable of the leaven, um, when we're talking, you know, when the Bible's talking about leaven, what do we normally call it? Yeast. And that's a good point. So there are many places in the Bible where when Jesus is talking about leaven. He's talking about sinful behavior. So in those examples, he's talking about, you know, if you have a little bit of sin in your life, if you don't take care of that sin, pretty soon your life is full of sin. Just like if you take a little bit of yeast and you put a little bit of yeast in five pounds of flour, in just a little bit of time, that all of that flour has the leaven. It spreads all over it. It's just like if you, if you have a glass of water, if you put one drop of color, coloring in it, what happens to all the water? It's colored. You can't, keep, you can't keep that little bit of coloring in that glass of water. It goes everywhere. Um, and in this case, because Jesus, he, he's, he uses a bunch of parables talking about the kingdom of heaven. So when he's saying that the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven in the bread, like the yeast, in this case, it's not talking about sin it's talking about how fast and how complete you know the yeast goes through the flour does, does anybody know how many how much three pecks of flour is it's like 50 pounds this is a lot of flour and it doesn't take much because if, if, if you've made bread you take that little package of yeast and you mix that up with hot water and you put some sugar in there and you mix it with all the flour and then you get that yeast dough that makes cinnamon rolls and all those good things to eat but it mixes in with all of it. And that's Jesus' point here when he's talking about the leaven in this case, is that the power of God and the power of the kingdom has, has the ability to spread everywhere and to go anywhere, and it will permeate everything. And, and that's really what his point is here. And how, how does God's kingdom spread here on earth? Through us sharing the word is one of the, the most important ways. And can, can we make people be saved? 
No, we can live our lives in a way that we honor God and we live a life as righteous as we can. And when we sin, we repent and we turn from that. And that's what God's called us to do. We need to live a righteous life. We need to live as holy a life as we can. When we sin, we should repent, confess that to God, and, and then try to do better. We know as people, we're children of Adam, and we, we have that sin nature in us. It's very difficult for us not to sin. Um, but we need to walk a walk that's different. That's one of those things that um, when you look at these things, like when you look at that flower, when you put that little bit of yeast in that flower, is it very different? It, it is. It's changed. So when you're saved, what's one, what's one thing that happens to you? When you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, what's one thing that happens to you? You're a new creation in Christ. And that comes about because what happens to you? How are you signed and sealed so everything knows that you're saved? You're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And you're given all of the spiritual gifts. If you look in Ephesians, the first chapter of Ephesians does a really good job of telling you all these good things that happen to you when you become saved. So just like, I mean, you, you can make bread without leaven, right? And what do we call that? Unleavened bread or crackers. It's flatbread. It's very different than a cinnamon roll, isn't it? And you could put cinnamon and sugar on flatbread, but it's not going to taste like a cinnamon roll because it's not the same. So when we get saved and we get indwelt with the Holy Spirit and we've given our life to Christ, we should change. We should look different. We should not look like flatbread. We should look like cinnamon rolls. We should be different. People should look at you. Somebody who knew you before you were saved should, after you are saved, go, wow, there's something different about you. You know, why, why don't you do all this sinful behavior? You know, I've, I've noticed... Um, you know, you're kind and you stop and you ask me how I'm doing and you help me get my groceries out of the car or whatever people do. But that's what, that's what being saved is about. Being, if, if the only reason that you accepted Christ is so that you don't go to hell, and that's a good reason. But if that's the only thing, that's not what God's after. God is after you being obedient to him and serving him and loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you never do anything nice for anybody, if you don't, if you don't reach out to people, if you don't share the good news of the gospel, then, then you're really not living out the life that God has wanted you to do. So the, the next um, two parables that Jesus taught that we're going to look at, it's in Matthew chapter 13 again. We're going to skip to verses 44 to 46. And this is going to talk about the value of the kingdom. So we're in Matthew 13. And read 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again from joy, and hid again from joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the kingdom of God definitely has value. The most precious thing it has for us as believers is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We know where we will end up after this world. We know that God is here and watching over us and protecting us. Doesn't mean that we won't have hard times. Doesn't mean that we won't walk trials. Doesn't mean we don't have to deal with earthly consequences for sinful choices that we make. But it does have value. So if we look at this first case where we have a man... You know, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like somebody who happens to be out in a field 
and he comes across this treasure, but he doesn't own the field. So he puts the treasure back, and he goes, and he sells everything he has so he has enough money to go buy this field. Does that sound like it makes sense? To give up every, to go sell everything that you have to go buy something? I mean, what does it tell you about the value of what he wants to buy? It's first place. It's very valuable. And so this treasure that he found, was he actually seeking it? Was he really looking earnestly for it? He's just out walking in the field, and who knows how he finds it. You know, is there a, some piece of, you know, like a gold goblet that's kind of sticking up out of the ground? Or did he originally go out there to dig a fence post hole, and he's digging, and he digs up, you know, who knows why he's out there. But he finds it. Now, why didn't he just take it? It wasn't his. So he's trying to go about, when he finds this good thing, he's trying to go about it the right way. But he's willing to sell every single thing that he has so that he has the money to go buy this field so that he can rightfully own all of that treasure that's in it. So how, how is the kingdom of God like this? When we talk about salvation and eternal life in Christ Jesus, how is this parable similar to that? Yes, it, Paige makes, it's, it's a great point, is... When we're saved, and, remember, and when I talked about that, that you should be very different. You should want to do different things. You should act and behave and speak differently. And that's what, you know, this, because the kingdom of God is so valuable for us, we should be willing to be giving up everything in order to be what God wants us to be. To be obedient to God, to be a Christian, you're going to have to sacrifice. Sometimes that's, that's monetary sacrifice. Sometimes it's relationships. Many times it's activities like Paige talked about. You know, if, if you like to go hang out in the bar and, and do all those kinds of things, um, but while you're there with those people and they influence you to do things that are ungodly, um, you know, when, once you are saved, you should recognize that. You should start reading your Bible. You should start talking to fellow believers and find out that, oh, well, going and doing those things is sinful behavior. It's not good. You should go spend your time furthering the kingdom of God and not watching football games in the bar and betting with your buddies or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but it does, it does call for us to go and do something very different. And, and so when we think about being Christians and furthering the kingdom of God, we have to be, be willing to give up a lot. Sometimes it means giving up relationships. Sometimes that's even within your family. Sometimes you have to be willing to, you know, you, someone in your family may not believe in God, and if you believe in God and you want to follow him and you want to start, you know, you, maybe everybody, you know, everybody in that family curses a lot. And when you get saved, God tells us we shouldn't curse. You stop and you tell everybody else, I don't want to hear that. And then they get really mad at you because they're comfortable in their sin and they're not saved and they have no reason to want to not sin. Is you may have to leave and you might have to, you might work at a job that, um, around people that cause, you know, that influence you in a way that's not good. You may have to give up those things, but part of being saved and part of making Christ your Lord and Savior is you're having full faith in him that he'll direct you where you need to go. So if you're in that job that's not good and isn't leading you down a righteous path, you have to have faith that if you leave that job, God's going to provide another job for you. God will provide a job that will give you the money that you need to support your family, that will allow you to be a better Christian that will be allow you to follow God better that will allow you to do the things that you need to do and it's the same thing with relationships you may you may have friends that you <clears throat> had gone to school with since grade school and you've always run around and you've always done the same things and they're not saved and now you get saved and they want to go out and, 
and party and do all this stuff on the weekend or you know maybe they engage in some kind of illegal activity and you get saved and you say you know what guys I can't I can't go do that anymore you know I can't participate in this because you know God says we have to have um, true weights on our scales and what we're doing is we're cheating people because we're doing you know whatever you're doing and you have to stop and those are the kind of changes that need to happen in your life when you go from being unsaved to being saved is, is you should see those changes it's also like this merchant who's looking for pearls pearls in the Mideast are one of the most rare and most valued jewels because um, you think about the Mideast, there's lots of desert, there's not a lot of ocean and water. So if you have a pearl, they're worth a lot of money. And it tells us that this is a pearl merchant, so he knows pearls. And he is looking for pearls. And so what does he do when he finds a pearl that's worth a lot of money? What does he do? He sells everything else he has, and he buys this pearl. And so he knows the value of it. And and again, it's somebody who, and this is not somebody who just happened upon it. This is somebody who's really seeking. And there are people out there who are seeking God, and they haven't found the answer yet. And they have, maybe they haven't been willing to listen. They're, they may be looking for God in the wrong places, or they're trying out all the religions because they want to find the right one. But they're seeking. But again, it should be the same thing. When you find that pearl that's the most you know, pure, perfect pearl there is, when you find that truth, when you truly find out who God is, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when you find God, you need to sell whatever it takes to be able to follow him. And that's what the pearl merchant is doing. And, and that's what these examples are. It's just Jesus giving the disciples and the people who are listening to him an idea of what the value of the kingdom is. And so what can we do to show how valuable the kingdom is. Yeah, carry ourselves in a way that represents it. You've all done something now as you got up early enough, you came to Sunday school and you're, you're listening to the word and you're getting a better understanding of the word, right? We have to give up our time. We could all go do other things. We could be sleeping in, we could be out fishing, we could be doing lots of other things, but you chose to come here to invest in God's word and to hear more about it and to learn more about the kingdom and to fellowship with one another and find out what's happening in our lives and to pray for one another. And all of those things, as we do all of those things, we grow in our relationship with God and we become better followers of Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes when we get together and we're talking with folks and we talk about what we're doing is we find out maybe what we thought was okay to do really isn't okay to do. And that's not a bad thing. God leads us to truth and understanding in many different ways. But when, when God's tugging on your ear and he's saying, hey, you know, you might think that's okay. That's really not good behavior. It's not good in a lot of ways is you need to listen to that. And you don't want to go back to that old thing because our, our flesh, our sin nature says, yeah, but it's not that bad. I'm not, I'm not murdering anybody. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not stealing. It's really not. But if God says it's bad, it's bad. Sin is sin. And we need to work hard to try to take care of that. The last parable um, we're going to talk about is it helps us understand the purity of the kingdom. And it's in Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 47 to 50. It's Matthew 13, 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. 
So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so here the parable that Jesus is using is fishermen using a dragnet. So what a dragnet is, is it's a big fishnet and has floats at the top and weights on the bottom. And so they get in their boat and they row out offshore and they cast that net and they have ropes tied to the end of it. So the weighted end goes all the way to the bottom and the floats hold it up. So now you have this net barrier that's in the water and they take the ropes and they start rowing to shore and they keep pulling those ropes and they pull it all the way up onto the shore. And when they get it up on shore, anything that was in that net, they caught. And so then what does it tell us that they do once they catch all these sea creatures, what do they do with them? They sort them. They sort the good from the bad. So, um, and Jesus tells them, you know, at the end here, exactly what that means as far as the kingdom goes. So how, how do they know? These are Jewish fishermen. How do they know what's good and bad? God told them in Leviticus. So if you turn to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 9 through 12. So Leviticus 11, starting in verse 9. So this is God's word for the Jewish people. These you may eat, whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever is in the seas and in the rivers that does not have fins and scales among all the teeming life of water and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable to you and they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat their flesh, and their carcasses you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. So these fishermen know what fish to keep, what creatures, right? Because it grabs everything, this dragnet. So they know what to keep because of God's word. We know what we should do because of God's word. Later in Matthew, it's chapter 25, he uses another parable to help the, the disciples and the people understand about, the, about sorting in the end times. So Matthew 25, I'm going to reread verses 31 to 46. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it for me. Then he will say also to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hunger, hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into the eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is a very good example of the kingdom and what God's requirements are, and that there will be a judgment. And as believers who are saved, Christ paid for our sins. And so we are considered sheep. We are children of God who have our sin paid for, and we'll be on his right hand. And those who aren't are the goats, and they're on the left. And, and it helps us understand when, when we behave. You know, we talk all the time about we should be like Christ, and we should be obedient to God. Well, what does that mean? And Jesus tells it pretty plainly here. And really, the, the commandments could be summed up into two things. It's loving God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and loving your neighbor as yourself. So all of these things that Jesus talks about is loving your neighbor. If you see somebody who needs food or drink, you give it to them. You go visit people in prison. You go help people who are sick. You give up your time and your resources for your neighbor. That's what God expects you to do. This is what we're called to do. If you ask yourself, you know, am I, am I being Christ-like? Am I behaving in a Christian way? Am I being different from the world? If you're doing these things, you know, when we talk about doing it for God, when we do it, I mean, God's everywhere, but we can't really do it for God. So we do it for God's people. And that's really what should drive and motivate us as Christians is to really, if we're going to value the kingdom and we want the kingdom to grow, we have to do that ourselves. We have to do those things. If you look in James chapter 2, you know, James tells us that faith without works is dead. You know, really, if you're saved and you're born again and you're a new creature in Christ, you should behave differently. And that difference is you don't behave like the world. You don't, you don't keep things for yourself. You don't, you're not prideful. You don't hoard things. You don't look out for number one. Is you go help out other people. You take time out of your day. You're willing to give up something for someone else. As you spend your money on you know, helping a family who's traveling and don't have money to fix their flat tires, you go buy them a new tire at Walmart or you fill your tank with gas. Or when someone you know is really sick and in the hospital, you take time off of work, even though you have to use vacation, and you go visit them. And maybe you go to their house and mow their lawn or all those things that we do that maybe you don't think much about. But when God sees that, when you are loving your neighbor by doing these actions, that's what God considers being obedient to him. And so this, this whole lesson about the kingdom is that the kingdom is very valuable, and it is. It's eternal life. It's something that we can't do ourselves. The one thing we can do is we can admit that we're sinners. We can accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we can be saved. And then we begin the hard work of living the Christian life, which is denying self and living for others. You know, and, and when we think about that, you know, in, in this example at the end of Matthew here, you know, we're talking about sheep and goats, well... You know, the fishermen knew what fish to keep because they, they knew what those fish looked like. How do we know, or how do we know about being saved? What are some good verses that you can think of about what tells us that we're sheep and not goats? John 3.16 is a good one. Do you want to read it, Matthew? Do you have it handy? Do you have it memorized? Yes. Only through Christ. Because if we think about it, 
where do we all start at? What's Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever have eternal life through Christ Jesus. I like John um, 14.6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is only one way to be saved, and that's through Jesus Christ. So how, how do we get saved? Yes, Romans, Romans chapter 10. If you believe, with, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that you are saved. And those are all those things. So if, if you start wondering, am I really saved? Well, if you've done those things, and then you should be able to look at your life. You know, if you, if you got saved a week ago, your life might not have changed very much. Your life might actually have gotten to be very difficult because Satan will attack. Satan doesn't want you to be saved. Satan wants you to be like in the parable of the sower where he sows the seed. He wants you to be one that fell on the rocky ground that sprang up but didn't have any root and dies right away and falls away. That's what Satan really wants. So when someone gets saved, they need discipling. They need someone to come alongside them to help encourage them because Satan will attack. And we just know that's going to happen, so we need to be prepared. But if you're just new to being a Christian and you haven't studied the Bible and you don't really understand that, and you don't have a lot of experience having faith in God and watching him work in your life, we need that. And that's one of those things that we can do as more mature Christians is come alongside people who are having a really difficult time and help them understand that it's, it's a trial God's having them walk through, that it grows our faith. It's just like an endurance athlete. If you want to run a marathon, how do you train for running a marathon? run not not by walking around the block which is good but if you want to run 26 and a half miles you start off if you've never run or you don't run very much you start off by running a couple miles and then a couple more miles until until uh, you know a couple months into it you can run 12 14 miles on the weekend and there's whole training things and it's amazing people are people that want to run has anybody here ever trained for a marathon or run one? Ricky has. I mean, Ricky's a triathlete. You, you plan that stuff out, right? You don't just, it doesn't just happen overnight. It's like building a house. I mean, you can call Home Depot and say, you know, I need, you know, I don't know, I don't even know how many two-by-fours go in a house. You can have a whole truckload of lumber show up at your house, but unless you know what kind of house you want, and you have to have a foundation, and you need to know how many two-by-fours, because if you need... You know, if you're framing, you're doing floor joists, two-by-fours don't work good for floor joists, right? You need a two-by-six, right? I mean, there's all these things, and so people know how to do that, but people won't take the time to look in the Bible to plan that out. But you don't get to be a mature Christian. You don't wake up. You wake up, you know, you're fully saved, but being able to walk that walk and really stay away from sin and really really be able to convince yourself that, that you don't need this new thing because you want to take that money and give it to San Juan Bible Camp because you know that they need camper scholarships. That's all that faith that you learn to do. I mean, you probably all have engaged in some kind of activity that's somewhat dangerous, but because you've learned about it and studied it and know how, it, how you do it, you don't think twice about it. Well, that's how you get to be a mature Christian is you just you live that way and you study it and you know it so that even when it looks like what you're about to do, the world says, that's foolish and you should never do that. You do that because you know God has led you there. You've prayed about it. He's walked you there and you're willing to go ahead and do that. 
And that, that's that growth and that maturity, and that's how the kingdom grows, is really by those types of examples. Does anybody have questions or comments they want to make before we wrap it up? Okay, I'm, I want to end. I'm going to read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Because it's, you know, when we talk about these things and we talk about, you know, eternal life and hell and, and all those kinds of things, it's hard and, and then we don't always live our best Christian life. But God's always there and we know that Christ has paid for all of our sins. So one of the most important things to remember is that um, you can be different through the power of God and, and the love of Jesus. You can be different. So even if you haven't been a very good Christian up till now, you can change your ways and you can work to be better. So Philippians 3, 12 and 14 are really good verses that I read that help me remember that, that no matter what mistakes I've made in the past, I can be better in the future. And so this is um, Philippians 3, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we can always, we can always be better and we can always do better. God still loves us. God knows we're going to make mistakes, but he forgives us. And, and he just wants us to do better. And so as we, as we live for the kingdom and we really value it and we work to grow the kingdom, even when we make mistakes, we need to keep pressing forward. We need to keep working and doing those things that bring honor and glory to God.